Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. I'm an optimist most of the time. I really am. Uh, and that was one of the things I loved about Miss Mildred Castleberry when we uh, had her memorial service on Friday. She was an optimist, always smiling about stuff. And uh, no matter what the situation was, you, you run into her, she's smiling. And uh, I'm an optimist. Some people believe that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I believe that we're living in a time when God is beginning to do something that he has waited till this very moment to do. And I'm excited because you and I are around to get to be a part of what he's doing. And he doesn't always do things like I believe he's preparing to do today. Uh, I, I, I love revival. Revival is a rare instance. It's a rare event. But I love revival. Revival is the visible moving of God in a certain place among a certain people for an indefinite period of time, changing the lives of those people. That's my definition of revival. And, and I believe that we may be on the initial throes of revival. Now, time will tell whether that is true, but uh, sure feels like the beginning of it uh, to me. And um, so I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about what God's doing. I want you to look in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, where there was another visible once in a history event where God moved. And, and he, when he moved, it was visible to everybody. Acts chapter 2. Title of this message is, What is Happening Here? What is going on here? Okay? Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They said, oh, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews. And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel when he said, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In 1999, just a few years ago, during the Christmas holidays in England, there was a physician. His name was Dr. Duncan Cameron. He was in his office seeing patients when there, there was brought before him a five-year-old girl and she was brought to him because there was a discoloration, a severe discoloration in her face. Her face was orange. And she had not been applying sun, uh, a sunless tanning lotion. That causes some folks to turn orange, I understand. She had not been uh, overexposed to the sun. That wasn't what the problem was. And so he began to ask some questions. He looked at her face. He looked at her arms and her hands. And he looked at her legs. It was obvious that she was discolored. It was obvious that she was orange. And it was pretty obvious that she had not always been orange. What was the reason? He began to examine her. And he found out that this five-year-old girl the day before, had drunk one and a half liters of Sunny Delight orange drink. One and a half liters of Sunny Delight. Have you ever drank, uh, have you ever drunk Sunny Delight? Raise your hand. Yeah. She had drunk a, a, a liter and a half of Sunny Delight orange drink. And that drink literally caused her skin to have an orange tint. Now, this is a true story. I know sometimes you look at me because I can tell you look at me and say, I don't know if he's telling the truth or not. I don't know. Well, this is a true story. She literally had an orange tint as a result of drinking what really occurred, uh, happened to be too much sunny delight. And so they tested her blood levels for vitamin A, which is in sunny delight, and they derived that the count was extremely, excessively high and that she needed to change her diet. Evidently, what we consume consumes us. That's, a, that's just a, 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 an age-old principle that's always been true. What we take in consumes us and it impacts uh, our lives. It impacts the way we look. It impacts the way we behave. It impacts the way we interact with other people. In Acts chapter 2... The writer of Acts, presumably a physician whose name was Luke, writes to us about an event that occurred on a special holiday, special Jewish holiday, the holiday of Pentecost. Pentecost is a Greek word that means the 50th day. Penta means 50 or 50th. Cost is Greek for day, 50th day. Pentecost was a festival that fell on the 50th day after Passover. Passover was the day that Jesus was crucified. 
And so on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that, that uh, an event occurred whereby the Holy Spirit came down from God out of heaven. Now, this wasn't the first time the Holy Spirit had ever arrived on earth. He'd been working on earth all through the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was working. Even in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was working. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, one of the opening verses says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. He was always around, but on the day of Pentecost, he came and he filled the disciples there. There were about 120 of them. They were very fearful disciples. They were locked in an upper room. They were fearing for their lives. If they crucified Jesus, there's no reason why they won't come and try to crucify us. But on that day, they were filled with something that consumed them. They consumed, whether they realized it or not, something, not really something, someone. And that someone that that they consumed, in turn, consumed them. And as a result, some pretty incredible things happened. Now, the day of Pentecost event uh, is not going to be repeated, if I understand the scriptures right. I mean, that day, which, which was the birthday, the official birthday of the church, it's not going to be repeated. However, there are times, very special times and seasons during a church's life, during a, a, a nation's life, during a people's life in which the Holy Spirit, who is always the, the generator the producer of revival, there are times, seasons, when the Holy Spirit moves upon a certain group of people and he does things that he does not normally do. And one of the ways, one of the ways that you, you can identify that the Holy Spirit is doing something is there will be somebody, maybe several somebodies, who will look around and say, man, hmm, what's going on here? Something's happening here. It's not happening just everywhere else you might turn. Something unique is happening. And the interesting thing about the day of Pentecost is, although that particular event will not be repeated just like it was, there, there are enough uh, components of what happened on that event that we can glean some truths that help us to know what God's doing or whether he will be doing something similar to it in our day. Now, I want you to notice something. When God moves like he did on the day of Pentecost and when God moves in the hearts of people, even today, it usually begins with uh, chaos. And that's the first thing I want you to note. Crisis or chaos often precedes God's greatest work in people's lives. Chaos, crisis. Now, this is not always the way God works, but as I look at the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and as I look at my own life, and as I look at the lives of people, Christians, that I know and have been able to walk along with them in their Christian life, what I found is that some of the greatest movements of God in individuals' lives, in churches' lives, and in nations' lives occurred right after or in the middle of a chaotic crisis. I'm serious. I mean, in a crisis, think about this. This post-resurrection band of believers were fresh from having their lives torn apart in some major ways. The disciples left after the death and ascension of Jesus, a fear-filled group. 
They had been through more failure and tragedy than most of us really realized. They were still reeling, I believe, from their own failure to stand by their Lord at the time of his greatest trial. The Bible says that when Jesus was on trial early that morning, the day he was crucified, the Bible says that most of the disciples forsook him and fled. The only one that we know of who ended up being present at at the crucifixion where Jesus died was John. Nobody else. And although Peter and Andrew were there during the trial, they didn't go in. They didn't even go in and, and, and testify on Jesus' behalf. You know the story. They stayed back and they were warming by the fire outside while Jesus was inside being tried. And there were people who came up. You've been with him. Weren't you with him? Aren't you one of the Galileans who followed him around? No, Peter said. So they were still reeling from their own failure to stand by Jesus. Peter's still reeling from it. Even though uh, 50 days have passed since that crucifixion, since that tragic night, and even though they had experienced Jesus' resurrection, and even though they had spent the better part of seven weeks walking with him and talking with him and hearing with him uh, as a resurrected Jesus, even though they had experienced all that victory of, of him being resurrected, no doubt still they felt the pain of their failure. Only weeks earlier, the person, Jesus, that they had followed for at least three years and they had, that they had put all of their marbles in, they had put all of their trust in, the man was killed. None of them expected that. He'd been trying to, pre- to prep them for it, but they never got it. They didn't understand it. And when he was crucified, it turned their lives bottom upwards. Their lives were in continual crisis. And now they were asking the question, what now? The one we follow was crucified, and yeah, he resurrected, and that, that has just amazed us all, but now he's, he's not staying with us. He's ascended back to the Father. What do we do now? He said there's going to be this, this Holy Spirit, this, 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 this paraclete, the one who walks alongside of us who's going to be with us, but we're not going to be able to see him. Or will we be able to see him? What now? You ever been in a crisis mode? And all of a sudden you look around and you say, man, what, what now, God? What are you doing now? My life has fallen apart. What now? They also felt the raw shock that Judas... One of, their, one of their best friends had turned on Jesus in an incomprehensible way. You say, well, all of them probably knew about Jesus, Judas. Let me tell you something that they, that they believed about Judas. They trusted him so much that he was the treasurer for the group. And yet this man that they had trusted so well turned out betraying them. Sold Jesus out to the Roman authorities and to the chief priests. In that group of 120 followers was the family of Jesus. Now, Joseph, presumably, is already dead, but Mary is there among that group of 120, and Jesus' brothers and sisters are there. Now, you ever wondered what they thought, how they were feeling? Because keep this in mind, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that while Jesus was ministering, while he was physically alive, before he ever went to the cross, Jesus' own brothers and sisters thought he was insane, They tried to get him to go see somebody. They they were ashamed by him. John chapter 7 verse 5 says, for his brothers were offended at him. And that offense, 
that embarrassment over their brother Jesus continued until after the resurrection. It was only the resurrection that changed their minds. Now, how do you think they felt? They, they had to have been overwhelmed by guilt. And they were among this group of 120. This group of 120 who was trying to regroup. This group of 120 who no doubt felt like their lives were lives of perpetual chaos and crisis. You ever feel like sometimes you're living in continual crisis? And sometimes when you're living in, in what appears to be continual crisis, you feel like there's just absolutely no hope. You probably heard about the guy who was having some symptoms. He knew there were some health problems. He was uh, up into upper middle age. And so he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, well, let's run some tests. And they ran all kinds of tests. And after they ran some tests, they waited a couple of weeks and they got the results from the test. And he went in to see his doctor and the doctor says, well, doctor said, well, I've got some good news, but I've got some really bad news. The good news is we have determined what you have. The bad news is it is an incurable disease and you do not have much time left. And the man says, doctor, what do you mean I don't have much time left? How much time do I have? And the doctor said, 10. The man said, what do you mean? 10 days, 10 hours, 10 months, 10 years? And the doctor says, nine, eight, seven. Sometimes there feels like there's no hope for the crisis that we're in. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. And this is something we must always remember. When you feel like you are in a hopeless, continual, chaotic crisis, that is the best situation that God likes to work in. And it was always that way, even from the opening verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Some translations said, say a formless void. Other translations say a formless chaos. And the next phrase says, and God said, let there be light. You see what I'm talking about? God seems to do his, his most amazing work reaching into our chaos and bringing in light. When, the, when the, the Israelites were in Egyptian captivity, they had been in Egypt for 430 years. Much of that time they had spent in slavery. They had cried out to God and they felt like there was no hope. Many people had lived and died in that slavery. And so God sends Moses. What was happening? God was reaching into their chaos and he was speaking light into their chaos. You living in a chaos, you living in a crisis that seems to not end, you living in a crisis for which there seems to be no hope, lift up your head and smile because that's the kind of situation God works in most. That's the kind of environment in which God does his best work. Crisis often precedes God's greatest work. Second, when God does show up, as he showed up in Acts chapter 2, he shows up in major ways at just the right time. That's not going to be my time and your time. And I won't tell you, I, I mean, I, I'm a Baptist preacher and I love the Lord and I really do. But one of the things I've learned, um, I guess over the last 20 years of, of my life as a Christian, I've learned to become more honest with God when I talk to him. 
I mean, when I talk to him, if I have a question, I just ask him. Some people say, oh, you don't, you shouldn't do that. Listen, God is a big God. He can take our questions. He can take our grumbling. He can take our complaints. He knows that he's created us with limited knowledge. There's only so much we can understand. And, and the very implication of limited knowledge is there's going to be things that we don't understand. God knows that. And so he knows that there will be times when we can't understand what's going on around us. So there are times when I ask God, I say, God, what are you doing? God's timing, however, is always perfect. The, the verse one says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I, I really love the way the King James Version says this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. I love that. When it had fully come. I love the way that that phrase is worded. It's a phrase that the Apostle Paul sometime later also used in, in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, when in talking about the arrival of Jesus to earth, he says this in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. When the fullness of time had come, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is a phrase that speaks of God acting at just the right time in just the right way. And so when we see a date ascription like we do in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, what is being said is that at just the right time and in just the right way, God showed up. So... Crisis often precedes God's greatest work. When God does show up, he shows up in major ways at just the right time. Verse 2 said, suddenly, when that day had fully come, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them. I mean, I can't imagine what that was. I can't imagine what that looked like. Luke is trying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe it for us, but even then I, I, I'm, I'm satisfied that his description doesn't come close to adequately describing what went on. It was a phenomenon that was unheard of. It had never been done this way before. Are we believing that God can still do things that have been heretofore unheard of in our lives? Do we believe that God is a God who wants to do something unheard of in our midst? Listen, folks, I don't, it doesn't matter how bad things look out in the world. God, that, that, that's the very environment that God likes to work in. That's the one that he likes to reach into and pull out the most wonderful and amazing things he's ever done. Now, the third thing I want you to see is this, that God's intervention impacts people differently. You already know that. When God intervenes, people respond in a variety of ways. First, there are those who just simply didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Verse 5, beginning with verse 5, the text says, Now, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They were, they were there for the holiday, Pentecost. And when they heard this sound, the crowd came together, watch this, in bewilderment. In bewilderment. They didn't understand it. They looked around and said, aren't these people Galileans? Which meant, that was a derisive term, aren't these people uneducated Galilean fishermen? I mean, I mean if God's going to work through somebody, don't you think he ought to use somebody qualified? 
Aren't these Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? There are two different Greek words here in this text that are translated language. One of them is glossolalia. We get our word glossary from it, and, and it means language. But there's another Greek word in there. It's the word dialectos, which means dialect. And here when he says, he said, we've heard, we've heard people speaking in tongues. That's glossolalia. In fact, we hear them speaking in our native language. That's dialectos, which meant not only were they, did these people hear the apostles in their own language, but they even heard their language in the dialect that they normally hear it. I've told you before that if there were some Born and raised Georgia folks there, which there weren't, but if they had been, they would have heard Simon Peter preaching. They'd have heard him in English, but not just English. It would have been a Southern drawl. Listen, y'all, this Jesus you talking about, that's an amazing thing. It really was. There were people who didn't understand it though. And there were others who rather than seeing a rushing mighty wind, instead thought that Peter and the apostles were three sheets in the wind. Verse 13, some made fun of them. They said they, they've had too much wine. Others were empowered by it. This was certainly the case with Peter and the other apostles. They were empowered by it. All of a sudden, they were able, this fearful, afraid bunch of people became uh, totally confident, fearless. All of a sudden, they could do anything. Standing up in that group. Most important result, I think, is that Thousands of people were saved as a result of it. We didn't read verse 41 in this text, but we got to read it. Verse 41 says that about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. You hear that? 3,000 people. Now, I've never been in a revival where on the first day of that revival, 3,000 people got saved. I'm going to tell you right now that if that ever happens... I'm just going to flat out die and go to heaven right then and there. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. I've never been in a place where 30 people got saved all at one time. But imagine what that would be. Imagine what would happen if we, on, on some Sunday morning we, we enter into the invitation and 30 people come up and say, man, I just need to, I need to have Jesus in my life. 3,000 people. Here's the message in a sentence, folks. I want you to get this. God is doing something he's been waiting until this very moment to do. And it will change people's lives. And it will result in the saving of many souls. John Getty was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in 1848 until his death in 1872. Almost 30 years he was there. He came as a Presbyterian minister and he had a spiritual passion for the people of those islands. And he served there all those years. And when he died, the people of, that, of those islands, uh, they, uh, they erected a, a monument for him. And in that monument, among the words that are in that monument, here's what they say. In memory of John Getty, missionary sent from Nova Scotia to an Anitium for 24 years. And then it says, are you ready for this? When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians there. And when he left in 1872, there were no heathens there. You hear that? You hear that? You know what happened? God supernaturally impacted a single solitary human being, John Getty, and used him 
as the vehicle through whom to bring salvation to an entire island of people. I believe God wants to do something. I I think he's already starting it. The you. You want to be a part of it? I know you want to be a part of it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, send your power just now. Lord, I recall that old hymn we used to sing the churches I grew up. They were in an upper chamber. They were all with one accord. When the Holy Spirit descended, as was promised by our Lord. Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send the power just now and baptize everyone. Lord, start a work. Start a work in us. Impact every one of us. Let us know that you're here among us. And let us see unheard of things that could only be explained by you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.